0: Hi and welcome to Bloody Goodreads, I am your host Mark Goddard and today's guest, and this time I'm actually going away a little bit from the from the horror genre uh, and going to crime, which I'm a huge fan of the crime genre and uh, this author we have on today, he is,
1: uh, I'm, I'm a huge
0: fan of his work, um, Buried was one of the books that got me really into crime, crime fiction and uh, I absolutely love the Tom Form character, so it's going to be... A, pleasure to talk to our guest today. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Mark Billiner. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well uh, in these, these strange times that we have at the moment. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, a pleasure. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what we'd like to do on Bloody Good Reads is basically uh, chat to authors, find out a bit about their career, talk about their work, but most importantly is talk to them about their Bloody Good Reads. So I basically force authors to pick free books because apparently I'm mean like that. So um, (laughs) in a a very similar way to Desert Island Discs, we just talk about free free books that you absolutely love. So um, I'll start the podcast as I always start. And uh, basically, how did you get into writing? And uh, have you always been a fan of the crime genre?
1: um well I've always written something I suppose I mean I I I remember you know I was at the kind of school where you you could be sort of anonymous if you weren't a brilliant sports man or you know hugely academic but I got my kicks by doing that but well doing school plays and stuff but that moment when the teacher asked you to come to the front of the class and read your story out that Mm -hmm. was I can still remember the buzz I got out of that you know reading a reading a book to 30 30 other kids who would just take the mickey or whatever and I've always written something and I guess by the late 80s I was writing for television I was working as a stand-up I'd gone from acting to stand-up comedy but I was devouring crime fiction which I, I'd always loved ever since uh, a, a teacher at school started reading a Sherlock Holmes stories in class when I was about 13 um, so yeah I loved crime I was reading it I was reviewing it I was hanging around on the fringes of the of the crime community going to festivals and conventions and stuff doing anything to get free books basically <laughs> and i suppose the missing piece of the jigsaw was was to sit down and try and write one and i even though i'd written all sorts of stuff by then i was writing for tv i'd written stand up i'd written songs i'd written terrible poems whatever a book always seemed Hugely daunting. You know, you'd pick them up, and some of them were like house bricks. And I just thought, wow, how much work is that? And then, one holiday with the family, I sat outside this villa in Corfu or wherever the hell we were uh, with a beer and scribbled in a notebook. I had an idea for a book, and I started scribbling. And by the end of the holiday, I realised I'd got about, I got about thirty thousand words, and I thought, hang on a minute, that's about a third of a novel. <laughs> You know, maybe it isn't as impossible as I thought it was. So I tarted those 30,000 words up when I got home. I sent them off and a couple of agents said, yes, please. And I picked one and they sent it off and a bunch of publishers said, please, can we have it? And I was off. I was off and running, but I hadn't even finished that first book and i i'd got my book deal which i realized was tremendously lucky mm. and i know that's not the way it's supposed to happen but yeah and and suddenly i was a crime writer and then from that moment on i've i've really not wanted to do anything else so a
0: sleepyhead the the first one you wrote it was yes it was Brilliant. It's great, great book as well. So no one, no one, they no want to grab it.
1: I'd read this book. I'd read a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is a, a non-fiction book uh, written by somebody who, who'd been a victim of this terrible thing called locked-in syndrome, where you can see and hear and feel and are completely aware of everything going on about around you, but you can't move at all. You are completely trapped inside your own. Essentially, lifeless body, um, and he wrote this book by blinking. It was the only thing he could do was blink, and he dictated this entire book by blinking. And I just thought, wow, this is this is about the worst thing that could happen to a person. And because I'm sick and twisted, I thought, I wonder what if you could do that to somebody on purpose. And my wife, who's a TV director, was working on Casualty at the time, okay. and she said, "Oh, come and talk to our medical advisor." So I went in and talked to this amazing bloke called Phil Coburn, Doctor Phil Coburn, who was the model for for my character Phil Hendricks, who's been in every book since then. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and Phil said, Yeah, you, you could do it, but it would be incredibly difficult. And if you got it ever so slightly wrong, they would die. And then this sort of dark light bulb went off, and I just went, That's the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and, you know, it had a good hook. I knew Sleepy Head had a good hook, essentially, the serial killer who
0: isn't trying to kill anybody. Um, and yeah, I, I got lucky first time. Sleepy Head's really dark. I mean, the, the closing, closing part of that book is so. Tense. I love the end of that book. Nice. It's great. Well it's funny, it's
1: funny you should have been talking about, about horror mark because for the first two or three books I wrote, I was almost being marketed almost as a horror writer. Yeah. You know, the first two books especially were very scary and I was very happy with that. But all the marketing was about, you know, don't read this when you're on your own, you know, hugely creepy, hugely scary. And I you know, I'm very happy. I don't really care what people call the books. You know, I remember my, my agent saying, Do you mind if we call them thrillers? I said, You can call them cookery books. So I don't really care as long as somebody wants to read it. But, you know, since then, because it's a series and my major character is a detective, you know, they are, they are quite clearly crime novels. Some are scarier than others, some are darker than others. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, the first few books were, were definitely
0: on the scary side. No, definitely. You see, like, films like Seven and, like, Science of the Lambs, people pass, mm-hmm. you know, those as horror films sometimes. And,. So it's yes. a very very fine line. I've always said this for a couple of other authors on. It's a fine line between crime and horror. You know, it's, it's serial killers in serial killers. It, it is, it, of you know, course, it's a
1: pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're dealing with horrific subjects at all times. You know, you're normally dealing with murder because there aren't too many people who want to read books about somebody who doesn't take their library books back. <laughs> so you know, when you're writing about crime, you are tending to write about the worst crime imaginable, and that is horrific. And if you're talking about uh, a killer. And, and I've occasionally written about these killers who, who who kill more than one person. Then it starts. It starts to edge into horror. Of course, it is. And you know, the serial killer has become the modern day bogeyman, um, largely thanks to one book, which I shall be talking about shortly. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Such a good segue. <laughs> Why do we do that, Actually, What What a segue! Yeah. What is your first bloody good read? Well, it's not. It's not the book I'm referring to. I'm, I'm going to pick the book I normally pick when people ask me to for my favourite crime novel, which is The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett. It's over 100 years years old now, but it is still an amazing book. It's fizzing, it's furious, it's fat-free. It's it's absolutely amazing. It's the one and only outing of of Detective Sam Spade, who, of course, has become an iconic detective, largely through the, the movie with Humphrey Bogart and stuff, but only ever appeared in... In one novel, you know, Hammett quite cleverly resisted the temptation to write about him again. Um, and what is brilliant about it, what is absolutely brilliant about it, is that the mystery at the heart of the Maltese Falcon is nothing to do with the Maltese Falcon. The actual Maltese Falcon itself, this object, is, you know, the greatest MacGuffin in the history of crime fiction. The mystery at the heart of it is just who the hell is this detective and what what is he up to and what is his game? You never know. You never, you know, there are very few, I think, one vaguely nice character in the whole book. Um, and Spade certainly isn't nice. You know, when he finds out his partner's been killed at the start of the book, he, you know, I, I think he's in bed with his partner's wife. He's certainly having an affair with her. And you never quite know what his motives are because because Hammett never lets you into his head. You know, modern day detectives, my own included, we're forever saying to readers, this is what he thought, this is what he felt. But Hammett doesn't do that. He just lets him speak. And it's entirely up to the reader what they make of it. It's a fabulous book. It's got the most brilliant characters in it, which you'd know from the movie Joel Cairo and Casper Goodman. and uh, you know the ending is superb. It's also short. Mm. So many, so many novels these days have got incredibly long and baggy and saggy, but it's just, it's still a perfect, perfect crime novel.
0: Absolutely, brilliant joyce Never read it, but it's on my list now. <laughs> it's my, oh, my you must,
1: here. must. You know, you can read it in an afternoon. You can read it in an afternoon. It's such a quick read. And you'd be, I mean, I think, you know, Chandler and Hammett are often held up as the the sort of, you know, the outliers of of noir fiction and pulp fiction and uh, that kind of dark American detective stuff. And actually, I think, you know, Chandler was the one that certainly refined it, but it was definitely Hammett's ball he was running with. And Hammett, I think, has, has, has dated rather better
0: than Chandler. But, you know, just read it, for heaven's sake. So let's start off... The start of your career. So you were more of a like comedy actor, which I can look on here, it says, made married and the men are merry men. Yeah. Oh, I love that show
1: <laughs> yes indeed oh, I, well, it was something ridiculous, like like thirty five years mm. ago last week, something like that that the, the first episode yeah. was was aired no I mean best job i 've ever had um, and, and ironically, the job without which i wouldn 't be a, a a professional novelist i I was an actor, just a jobbing actor, and I walked into to an audition one day and it was for this show, and I got the part. And four, five years later, after umpteen series and all that sort of stuff, it was created yeah. by, by Tony Robinson, you know, Baldrick. Um, it was Tony's baby and he wrote it all. But then by the, end of, by, by the end of it, by the fourth series, he was so busy doing other things, he needed some help writing it. So he asked myself and another actor called David Lloyd, who played the other guard in it, Graham, I played Gary, um, if, we'd, if we'd, you know, co-write the fourth series with him, which we did. And so by the time it finished, I was suddenly a writer. And I'd inherited. It. I'd got a literary agent, and I was suddenly oh, I'm not an actor anymore. I'm a writer. But oh, what a job that was! Just running about in a forest yeah. with a big sword
0: for four four glorious summers. It's it's fabulous. A, it's such a memorable show, especially from kind of from my childhood and stuff. Like that. I, I remember it so well from being on BBC. Is
1: yeah, I mean we had we had an amazing time.
0: Hi guys, it's Mark here from the Snakebite Horrorcast, Snakebitehorror.com and bloody good reads. Really hope you're the episode today. I'd bring your attention to a brand new supporter of the podcast. Uh, they are Abominable Books. Uh, it's UK's best horror and thriller fiction book subscription service. They bring the world of horror and thrillers to your door every month for two brilliant prices. It's all the magic of haunted bookshops summer straight to your door each month. Basically gives you a brand new horror or thriller title, a luxury snack made here in the UK, a mystery second-hand book, possibly haunted book, and you also get one of a featured magazines like Black Static, Gasly and Hellbore, bookmarks, drinks, some surprises or two. It's such a great subscription box and they are an amazing set, guys. So head over to abominablebookclub.cratejoy.com There's even two different tiers of subscriptions you can go for in here. So head on over to either get a full guts or a bare bones edition of the box let us know what you think of the box and give those guys support get back to the show obviously you do a lot of comedy so was it hard kind of thinking i want to go into crime or is it very kind of like with comedy mindset is it it quite easy to get into that darker side
1: I, well, I hadn't really figured this out at the time. I was, so I was still working as a stand-up when, when, I, when Sleepyhead was published and off I went. Uh, in fact, for five or six years, I carried on working as a stand-up. And you know, the first questions I tended to get asked in interviews were, why would a stand-up comic write these dark books? I, and eventually I worked out a kind of shtick to answer these questions. But it, but it dawned on me more and more that they really are two sides of the same coin. And I learned so much from stand-up that I was able to feed into the books. Because, you know, like I can't walk onto I can't walk onto stage uh, stage at the comedy store and go, stick with me, I'll get funny in about 10 minutes. You've got to be funny straight away. You've got to engage that audience immediately or they'll start throwing stuff and shouting at you. And similarly with a book, you've got to engage the reader immediately, because if they're anything like I am, they'll give it twenty pages and go, this is terrible and pick up another book. So there's that, you've got to keep it going, you've got to keep the pages turning in the same way I've got to keep the laughs coming if I'm doing a stand up set. Um, and crucially A crime novel is structured in the same way that jokes are structured. It's all about the moment of of revelation. It's all about that time when you reveal the key bit of information. It's about timing. It's about misdirection. um, And it's about the reveal. And crime novels are full of punchlines, full of punchlines. They're just really, really dark ones. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned The Silence of the Lambs in your introduction. That has the best reveal that that I've, I've ever seen or read. You know, the moment right towards the end when, when the SWAT team are descending on the killer's house and they sneak up to the house. And meanwhile, Clarice Darling is away doing some, some you know, menial task on the other side of the country, just follow, chasing up some loose ends. The SWAT team ring the doorbell and you cut to the killer's beastly torture chamber and he hears the doorbell ring. And that's the moment when you as the reader or the viewer, if we're talking about the film, buy the dummy. You buy the dummy at that moment. And then the camera follows the killer up the stairs and all these horrible butterflies are flapping around. And he opens the door yeah. and it's Clarice Starling. And you go, oh! she's at the right house, they're at the wrong house. And it literally happens as you turn the page. Oh, it's yeah. the most amazing punchline. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the two things the two things actually have a lot in common,
0: you know. So, Steephead, great hit, absolutely a brilliant book. Then you get on to Skedecat, which is your next book. Which what was the yeah. inspiration behind Skedecat? Yeah. Because it's quite a again quite an, another really this tale.
1: I suppose very originally it was it was the darkest of inspirations. It was probably the James Bulger case. It just got me thinking about how one in in that case child could could mm-hmm. g another child up how one person can persuade another person to do things, what what you can do if you're scared, you know, how how, how powerful fear is. Um I'd also uh a year or two before that been the victim of of, of an assault of a, a rather horrible assault, my only my only brush with violent crime, when I was um attacked and held hostage in a hotel room for several hours. Um and I just remember how terrified I was, how absolutely terrified I was, and how I would have done anything. I would have done anything. I was just that. And it just I was I was struck. They hadn't you know, these these three guys that burst into my hotel room, they hadn't got guns or knives. I mean they might have done, but I didn't see them. But it was so terrifying that you you're infantilized and you'll do whatever they want. So anyway cut to a couple of years later when i'm writing scaredy cat i wanted to write about how powerful terror was mm-hmm. as a weapon you know that's why it's called terrorism i guess and so yeah th- those are the two things that fed largely into scaredy cat and actually scaredy cat was the book that i mean sleepyhead had made a, a, a decent splash um but scaredy cat was the book that i really broke through with it got it got shortlisted for the gold dagger which is the you know the big crime writers association prize for crime novel of the year it it you know, went top ten paperback, all that kind of stuff. So that
0: that was the book that I kind of thought, oh yeah, all right, I, I think I'm going to be able to do this oh. for a while now. Because it was Lazy Bones that won New the award as well. Is it Fiechten's old peculiar crime novel the year?
1: Yeah, that won the mm-hmm. the Fickson's crime novel of the year award. Yeah, yeah, which is a different a different award. Um, and yeah, I was I was so thrilled to get that. I, I remember the, that moment vividly. I was at the, that festival with my whole family, and when my name was read out my wife ran and got our (laughs) kids out of bed and uh and they and they came down and stood at the back of the room in their pajamas and everybody went oh (laughs) and i'm god long time ago that is now
0: (laughs) so did you always want to do a series is is the tom form character because he his character builds so much over the books they're always saying that you always thought in the back of your mind when you started to get sleepyhead that you wanted to kind of continue his journey
1: well not really because the truth is the first book really was about the victim that was really what i was interested in writing about you know i'd read far too many books where there's a cop and a killer and they're on this collision course and nobody gives a shit about the victims you know they're just plot devices um so i wanted to put the victim of this particular crime front and center again something to do with my experience in that hotel room quite probably um but I needed a copper. I needed a copper for the first book because there had been a crime committed. So I just created one and stuck him on the page, knowing nothing about him at all. But when I went into all those publishers' offices when they were bidding for Sleepyhead, the first question they all asked was, is this the start of the series? And I just went, yep, <laughs> why not? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of without thinking. You know, when it became very obvious I was going to be writing about this guy for a while, and, you know, here I am writing about him over 20 years later. Uh but I never thought that would be the case. I mean, I'm a huge fan of series. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't, it wasn't a hardship, and it is no hardship to write a series. Um, you, the, the only way to do that, which we may talk about later, is to step away from it and do other things every so often. But no, no, I, I was very happy to 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 start him off on this on this rocky road, and I still don't know any more about him than the reader. You know, I don't have a, a dossier on Tom Thorne, which is probably a mistake because I get things wrong. You know, I occasionally get emails going, why are his eyes green in book six and brown in book nine? Or, you know, I make the odd the odd uh, cock up like that. But I'd rather it was like that because without knowing everything about him, he stays surprising. You know, that's the theory anyway.
0: Because Lazybones, I find his uh, his story arc gets a bit more kind of more personal, especially with his dad. And, you know, that, that kind of builds up throughout the novels as well. It's quite, it's yeah.
1: Yeah, I I mean, uh, the truth is, I've become become much more interested in that stuff. I mean, I I remember talking to a a brilliant British crime writer called John Harvey very early on. And John was saying, oh, how's it going? And I was telling him about the plot of my next book. And he was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, you'll get bored with all that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, you'll get less interested in the kind of crash, bang, wallop of the plot, and much more interested in what he called the looking out of the window moments. You know, those moments when it's just your detective sitting at home, you know, in my case, listening to Hank Williams or whatever, and just thinking about stuff. You know, what's going on inside his head? What's his personal life like? And yeah, yeah, I guess, obviously, I need it. I need a good plot. I need a strong narrative engine. You know, you've got to drive that reader through the book with a, with a plot that's going to hook him. But, you know, I've, what I've really enjoyed is watching this character change over 20 years. I mean, because of what. what me and 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 my peers in crime fiction put our characters through they can't be the same character at the end of one book let alone at the end of 20 so yeah he's he's been oh, on a journey
0: <laughs> <laughs> definitely so when when was it in kind of like during your writing that they optioned the TV version of sleepy head
1: Oh, really early, really, really early. I mean, um, and that happens all the time. It, it costs nothing to option a book or a series of books, so almost everything gets optioned. Quite often, you know, somebody will option your book to stop the production company up the road optioning it. And of course, ninety-nine times out of hundred, nothing happens. And and it was optioned really early, and nothing happened. And I more or less forgot about it. You know, they take you out for a few nice lunches or whatever, and and then that's the end of it. It wasn't. It wasn't until uh, David Morrissey got attached. That um, that that it was a goer, and that was that was down to me. That was um, an incredible bit of planning on my part and, and skullduggery. You know, people always ask you, who would you like to play? You know, in my case, who do you want to play Tom Thorne? Who do you want to play Tom Thorne from the first book on? Because they think that's all novelists are interested in is you know TV and film adaptations of their books. And I'd seen Dave in a bunch of great shows. You know, State of Play and Blackpool, and and all you want is a good actor. You know, a good actor is all you want. I'd got no strong idea in my head of what Tom Thorne looked like because I never really described him. Um, so I just thought I'll say his name. And if I keep saying his name, maybe one day you'll hear about it. And then a few <laughs> years later, Dave's filming somewhere overseas and, and he goes into a bookshop and he buys a pile of books and one of them's mine, as, as luck would have it, and he reads it and he likes it and he Googles my name and there's his <laughs> name. And he goes, bloody hell, I'm playing this bloke. And he comes home and he calls me. I go round to his house. We get on. Boom. Job done. Um, I mean, it really was that, that uh, into my trap, <laughs> Mr Morrissey.
0: Um, and, yeah, so that, that, that's how that series happened, yeah. So let's segue in to your second bloody good read. What have you brought along to us? Okay, well, this is a
1: kind of slightly odd one. Um, it's by a writer called John Connolly, who, who is somebody who sometimes who certainly mixes mm-hmm. crime and the supernatural. He's not quite a horror writer, although he's a brilliant writer of ghost stories, I should tell you. Um, but he's best known for this Charlie, uh, this series featuring uh, an American detective, private eye, called Charlie Parker. Um, but the book of his, which are wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I mean, I could have picked any one of them. But the book I've chosen is a kind of odd book in his canon, a book called The Book of Lost Things, which is a sort of adult fairy tale or a series of adult fairy tales. It's about um, uh, a young boy... Uh, during the war who's convalescing and just starts reading this variety of bizarre books on his shelf and it's about the power of books themselves I mean he, he sort of goes into the books it's a sort of, but it's incredibly dark, it's also incredibly funny it's also one of the the few books that I, I cried like a baby at when I finished it, it truly, it truly is a wonderful book, an absolutely wonderful book. It, it, it's one of those books that I give to people and if they don't like it I think <laughs> you can no longer be my friend You know how you get attached to certain books. Um, I mean, it's, you know, full disclosure, John is a very close friend of mine, but it it is just a brilliant, brilliant book. The book of lost
0: things. Awesome. So you got through quite a few books before you went to your your standalone one. So we had Burning Girl, Lifeless, Buried, which I absolutely adore. Love that book completely. Um, Death Message. And then you started In the Dark, your first standalone, and adapted in BBC, adapted it as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I was well aware by then. I was, mm-hmm. what, seven, seven books in maybe to, to the series. And, I you know, I'm a big fan of long-running series, but it was always a, a, a mystery to me. I'd talk to other writers, and the big question was always, how do you keep a series fresh? Because we could all name half a dozen series that were, shall we say, past their sell-by date, you know? And you don't want to be that writer. You don't want to be that writer that writes one book or two books or three books too many. And so I spoke to to the the people that knew best. And by that time I was friends with people like Michael Connolly, who I think is probably pound for pound the best crime writer on the planet. And and he did much the same thing. In fact, the first book of his that I read was a standalone or what was then a standalone called The Poet. And it was only that when I got to the end of that that I went, "Whoa, wow, there's this whole series of novels featuring this character, Harry Bosch. Um, and he's always done that. He'll write a few Bosch books, then he'll go away and do something else. And he said, you know, do that. He said, but be prepared for a drop in sales. Because back then, you know, that, you know, the series was kind of the Holy Grail and there's always that thing when people pick it up and go, oh, it's not a Tom Thorne book. No, I'm not going to read it. Thankfully, that didn't happen. And I loved writing in the dark. I absolutely loved it. And, of course, what it did was it also introduced this character, Helen Weeks, who was the main uh, character in that book, and then she then mm-hmm. sort of bled into the series. So I've done that with, with all the standalones. There's, It's all taking yeah. place in the same universe, I guess. You know, you may or may not have noticed, but Tom Thorne makes a small, mm-hmm. you know, cameo appearance in all the in all the standalone sometimes he's not even named no, he, but if yeah. you know the series you'll know it's him uh, so yeah i wrote i wrote standalone and every time i do write one um, the book that's coming out next year is a standalone every time i do one i kind of uh, you know beat myself up i'm 10,000 words into it and i'm struggling and i'm thinking why are you doing this you idiot you know you could just be doing a little scene with thorn and hendricks in the curry house or watching the football and you know you'd be on home turf but you know you've got to step out of your comfort zone you really have, and by the end of all the standalones, I've I've been really glad I've taken that decision. Um, so we'll see how next <laughs> year's standalone goes.
0: Cool. cool. So did the adaptation, it went straight to BBC, was remind me because I'm not sure which channel had Sleepyhead. Was that was that BBC as well? Or was that Sky? I thought it was Sky. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it was Sky that made Thorn, um, and the BBC that made In the Dark. Although In the Dark, confusingly, okay. was an adaptation of two books. In the Dark, which is a standalone, and Time of Death, which is a Tom Thorne novel. Um, But what they did was simply take Tom Thorne out of Time of Death and put Helen in instead. I mean, you know, so many things change. So many things change when when a book is adapted to television. But it has to. You know, at the time all those things were adapted, I would get a lot of quite stroppy emails from readers going, you know, where's Thorne's cat? Why is he living in a different part of London? Why has he got a different car? Why has Phil Hendrix not got a shaved head and piercings? Um, well, because the actor mm. wouldn't shave his head. It's really that simple. You know, it's not. there's no no conspiracy. And similarly within the Dark, you know, why have you changed this? Why isn't it Tom Thorne? But you, if you're going to turn a 400-page book into two hours of television, you've got to change so many things you've got to condense and you've got to cut. I can't do that. I've got to let a scriptwriter do that. That's I'm too close to it. And by the time that's happened, it's a different animal. It's a different beast. Um And as long as it as long as it has the same tone as the book, you know, yeah. obviously you hope the plot's more or less the same. <laughs> but you know, it's about the tone of it. And 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 all the adaptations. I've been very lucky so far. I've managed to do
0: that. So why don't we go straight into it? your final bloody good read. Which uh, which book have you chosen for us?
1: Well, this is a book you almost referred to at the beginning. You, you you talked about Silence of the Lambs, but I'm going to talk about the book before that, which was Red Dragon by Thomas Heron. Well, so obviously, as you know, there's a first appearance uh, mm-hmm. in print of, of Hannibal Lecter who who pretty much defined the serial killer, killer novel for for a decade or so afterwards. Tragically, what happened was an awful lot of very, very inferior imitations of, of Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs, which is an equally brilliant book, came along. You know, endless killers going, you know, I must kill when the moon is full or, you know, motiveless, just pointless killers and endless victims being carved up. Um, you know, Silence of the Lambs and, and especially Red Dragon are not that. They are amazing books because what, what they don't do is explain Hannibal Lecter. And there's a wonderful line, I think it's in Silence of the Lambs, when Clarice Starling says, What happened to you, Dr. Lecter? And Lecter says, Nothing happened to me. I happened. And that's all you need to know. You don't need... You know, unfortunately, I think what happened is that Thomas Harris, like the rest of the world, mm-hmm. fell rather too much in love with Hannibal Lecter. And in those later yeah. books... He explained him. He made the fatal mistake of explaining him. You know, Lecter was the way he was because mm-hmm. he had to eat his sister when he was a kid. Well, haven't we all, you know, I mean, uh, but the books, the books were just not the same after that. Mm. He, he was not that powerful bogeyman that, that he was in the first couple of Hannibal Lecter actors, but Red Dragon, you know, I picked it up at an airport somewhere, sat reading it on a plane. And I don't, I don't think I ate anything for about 24 hours. I just mm-hmm. couldn't, could not stop reading this book. Um, again, there's been, there's been how many, at least two adaptations of that book. Um, Mindhunter. Mindhunter, which is really good with, with Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter, and then Red Dragon with, with Rafe Fiennes, um, which isn't quite so good, but mm-hmm. it is just an awesome, awesome book. You know,
0: that really is a proper thriller. Goes, that goes to my second question. What you, which one would you prefer, Manhunter or, uh, <laughs> or the uh, remake?
1: Oh, of those two, of those two films, Manhunter, <laughs> Manhunter every time. Brian Cox, is, Brian Cox is just so great. I mean, Anthony Hopkins actually as Lecter is really good early on. But again, I think later it becomes a little mm-hmm. bit camp. It becomes a little bit knowing, you know, winking and going okie dokie and all that sort of stuff.
0: Where, you know, Cox's Lecter is much more kind of icy and. Yeah. and which is what you things. kind of expect from the Hannibal Lecter character. Which is a shame, though, because if you read, if you watch the movies first, then read the books later, which unfortunately, you know, for me, it, it was that case, you will always pitch, picture Anthony Hopkins in And, yeah. and you always picture him in your head when you're reading, which is just annoying.
1: Yeah, of, of course you do. Of course you do, and that that is always always the case with adaptations of novels. You know, who can? Is it possible to read a Jack Reacher book now without picturing Tom Cruise? Unfortunately, it's and, and, and it, it, it's especially true of authors too. Um, there's no question, for example, that Colin Dexter in the later Morse books was writing John Thor, and in the early Morse books, Morse is nothing like John Thor. Nothing at all like it. it couldn't be more different. But you know the, the the adaptation and the performance of John Thor was so iconic that that started to affect the way Dexter wrote the character. I can say with my hand on my heart, I I never for a minute imagine Dave Morrissey when I'm writing the books because because I've got no idea what Thorne looks like. I'm looking at the world through Thorne's eyes. I know what he thinks and what he feels about stuff, but what he looks like doesn't matter to me. You know, Dave and I did a bunch of events together. When the series first came out, and I said that to him, and he said, "Oh well, I don't bloody think about you when I'm acting either." And I went, "That's fair enough." Um, but I, you know, I really don't. Um, but obviously, readers yeah. might. You have to, you know, once there's been a screen adaptation, it's very difficult not to see that actor. You know, it's not
0: to see, like you say, not to see Anthony Hopkins mm. when you're reading Lecter. So, your new book, which is Crybaby, it goes back. Is it more of a prequel? What made yes. you want to go kind of back to yes kind of before?
1: Well. Several reasons. Firstly, because it was a a special book. It was the 20th book. So it was a sort of anniversary book. So I wanted to do something a bit different. I also was very attracted by the idea of going back to a time before there was lots of CCTV and mobile phones and the internet and all that stuff, because that stuff is the bane of a crime writer's life. You know, such a huge percentage of, of crimes in the modern day are solved straight away by CCTV footage and by mobile phone cell site triangulation and all that sort of stuff. And you have to find a way, a neat way around that if you're going to make your crime novel exciting. Um, so to be able to, to, to write about a time when that stuff wasn't there um, was hugely tempting. Also, to go back to a time when Thorne would be uh, younger and keener. And both his parents would still be alive when he would still be married. So I could see him as a a husband and a son um, and all those things that I've never really been able to write about. So, yeah, there there were a lot of reasons why I did it. And and I'm very glad I did do it Um, to the point where, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind is the idea that I might I might. Go back and revisit that time. I don't know. Oh, also fun for me to write about 1996, which I remember incredibly well, and I remember the the football tournament that took place, which is right at the centre of the book, in fact. Um, But it still felt like I was writing a historical novel Mm. when I was writing about it. You know, mad cow disease and A to Zs, and if you wanted to get pictures, you had to take them on a camera and then take your film to the chemist to get it developed. All that stuff which seems so odd now. Um, You know, the, the Met Police, the Met Police didn't even have external email in 1996. The most advanced bit of kit that Thorne has in this book, in technological terms, is a pager. Not even a pager with text on it, but just something yeah. that beeps on his belt. And then he has to go to a phone box, if he can find one that hasn't been used as a toilet, and uh, and call up and go, hello, uh,
0: Detective Sergeant Thorne, you wanted me? Um, so, no, it is was it a lot of going fun. Is it back, though? Because obviously, you know, 17 novels in, a lot of obviously happened to Tom in this time. Is it, is it hard to go back? Do you have to kind of revisit some of the stuff you've, you've written before to kind of remember well, no, no, it was the exact opposite, because
1: these days, if I'm writing a Thorn novel, as I have as just begun, um, you have to bear in mind all the stuff that's come before. You have to bear in mind the history and the cases and all that stuff. You don't always refer to them, you don't, you know, because sometimes it's dangerous to refer to them because you're talking about stuff that the reader may not be familiar with if they haven't read book seven or book 12. Or, but there is the weight of that history um but because I was going back to a time before that, I had none of that stuff. I didn't have to worry about any of that. It was sort of a blank slate in some ways. Um so no, it actually turned out to be easier. So
0: what is it planned for the future? Have you got any more standalone coming out or is it more kind of some more Tom Fawn stuff? Yeah, well like I I've been I've been I've been a busy little bee in
1: lockdown. I mean I um I wrote next year's novel. Which I had started, but it sort of started at the beginning of the year, and then once we went to lockdown, just thought, right, well, I'm going to crack on with this. So that book is done, and it is a standalone, uh, and it's coming out uh, next July. Um, yes, Tom will make his his usual cameo, but not right until the very end. Um, and it's a very different book for me. It's a first person, first person narrative, completely first person, which I've never done before, not for a whole book. Um, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, that'll be out next year, but you know, that little voice in your head immediately starts going, well, what about the book after that? So I'm, I guess, 10,000 words into the book, which will be out in 2022, yeah. which is a Tom Thorne book. And will also mark the return of uh Thorne's nemesis, I guess, who is the nastiest character he's ever come, a- come across, who's a character called Stuart Nicklin, who mm-hmm. first appears in Scaredy Cat, in fact, and... I I get a lot of emails from readers going, what's happened to Stuart Nicklin? When is Stuart Nicklin going to come back? Well, he'll he'll be back in 2022, is the answer. Absolutely brilliant. Is
0: there anything else kind of non-writing that you're working on as well, or just literally just work on books?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I... the, the the last couple of years, I've I've enjoyed myself more than is than is healthy. Um, as part of a, a rock band of crime writers um, called the Fun Loving Crime Writers, a bunch of us, six of us, myself, Chris Brookmeyer, Doug Johnston, Stuart Neville, Luca Veste and Val McDermid, uh, formed this band. It, it all started accidentally at a at a convention in America when three of us got up on stage and and messed about, and then we got asked to do some more stuff, and we formed this band. And to cut a long story short, last summer we played Glastonbury. They booked us to play Glastonbury for heaven's sake. And we play at festivals and and uh, we had to cancel the entire really? tour because of uh, the pandemic. We had some great shows lined up in the spring. And we'll be we'll be back doing we're gagging to get back on stage and do that again. So I've been doing that. I, I you know, I've done a bunch of other things. Um one of the books I'm most, most proud of is a book I wrote about five years ago called Great Lost Albums with um two crime writers called Martin Waits and Staff Shares and a comedy writer called David Quantic. We wrote this comedy music book, which, you know, I absolutely adore. Nobody bought it, um, but I absolutely adore that book. And I've done some musical collaborations. I did a collaboration with an Americana band called My Darling Clementine and where I wrote this huge long story based around some of their songs and we toured that we took that out around the country and made an album and so yeah I'm you know I'm doing other stuff um playing poker far too much doing too many jigsaws <laughs> wasting my time um, but as long as I can manage to to push a book a year
0: out I'll, I'll be a happy man random random question any of your books that you could pick to be adapted what would you kind of pick what, what would be the, the one Tom Thorne book you'd like to see adapt?
1: Oh, I guess that, well, the Tom Thorne book, I think if you're, you know, right this minute, probably change tomorrow, but that I'm most proud of, I think is a book called Love Like Blood, which was mm-hmm. three or four years ago now. Um, I'd love to see that adapted. That's a book about so-called honor killing, um, which I wrote in this sort of fury. I've never, I've never been so angry writing a book. And the more I researched the subject and the more I spoke to people, the angrier I got as I was writing it. And I was just thinking, I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. But I was pretty pretty chuffed with how it turned out. So, yeah, I'd love to see that adapted. There are a number of adaptations still yeah. bubbling under in the way that television moves ever so slowly anyway and the lockdown hasn't helped matters. Um, but yeah, there are a couple of things that may or may not happen, but Love Like Blood isn't one of them. So uh, if anybody wants to come and adapt that, give me a call. Yeah. Well thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's yeah, been an absolute it's, pleasure.
0: Uh, nice for me to know a bit more history behind, you know, the writing and as I said, again, I'm a big fan of the Tom Ford series and it's that's me fanboying in an English way. <laughs> um, so where can people find you? Social media. Where can people find me? Um well, I'm not sure I want to find <laughs> no, no, me. Not, wait, um, but, in t- <laughs> but in terms
1: of social media. Yeah, in in social media terms, I'm very easy to find. Well, I mean, I have a website, uh, markbillingham.com, dot com, and there's all sorts of ways they can contact me through that. Um, but just on Twitter at Mark Billingham or Facebook uh, Mark Billingham Author. Um, yeah, I'm easily get holdable of. Far too easily get holdable of. Somebody sends me a message, I can I can take a break from from writing my next novel and answer them, which is much more fun.
0: But uh, yeah, awesome. very easy to do that. Again thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's been been a pleasure talking to you. Um, as all, and as always, you, know, you can catch us as well over on Twitter and on Facebook. You can f- find us on bloody good, at, yeah, at Bloody Good reads on Twitter. Too many words at one time. Uh, Instagram at Bloody Good reads as well. Um, you can also catch me every fortnight over on the Snakeboat Horrorcast uh, where we review two films, uh, a fortnight in... The most laid-back way is probably not the best way, but it's in a, a laid-back way between you know me, Marcus, and, uh, and Niall. If you have any questions for any upcoming guests, or you know any any idea of anybody you would like to see on the podcast in the future, do give us an email, let us know, and just let us know if you're uh, enjoying the podcast as well. I'm loving the podcast so far. You know, we're quite a few episodes in, and uh, this year has been quite quite a good year for uh, for here, us at By and for Bloody Good Reads as well. So, thank you all for listening and. And uh, yeah, so again, thank you for listening. And I've been your host, Matt Goddard and I'll see you next time.